right, welcome back. Welcome back to our time of teaching now as we enter in to consideration of God's Word. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, today's service is online only, so uh, welcome to everyone at home worshiping with us. I uh, hope this finds you well. I don't think it uh, needs to be said, but obviously uh, another wild week in 2020. And today we get to continue in our series that we're calling Build Up. Uh, we're talking about how can we as the people of God be like these tall trees that even when the wind blows and, and maybe the top of the trees are swaying, as our eye falls down the tree and we see the tree, we see it settled, deeply rooted in the foundation of Christ. And, and when we do that, we can be a blessing to not only our fellow Christians, but also the world at large. And, and now more than ever, we need to be those kinds of people. I think we have a special task ahead of us as the church. And so I'd like to start by just reading today's text for us. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got a Bible, you could grab it and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first of four Gospels. A Gospel is a uh, basically biography of Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry. And Matthew is right there at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples, walked with Jesus, and watched him do everything that he did, saw him resurrected from the grave, and then gave us this account so that we might be able to know Jesus personally as well. So we're going to be in chapter 5, and this will be on the screen for you as well, but if you've got your Bible, would love for you to follow along with us. God's Word says this, Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So you got to picture this um, on, on what would have been a probably slight slope in this part of the world. Jesus climbs up and people gather around them and he gives this teaching to them. Jesus says this, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And here's verse 9, the verse we will Zoom in on today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus goes on to say, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. Let me just pray for our time of teaching now. Father God, we thank you for, first of all, sending your son Jesus, for stepping out of the throne room of heaven and stepping into humanity here on earth so that we might know you, so that the finite might know the infinite. Otherwise, we would have a hard time understanding who you are, what you're about, and what you're doing in your good world. And so we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his words here. We thank you for the Apostle Matthew recording them for us. We thank you for keeping these words over the last 2,000 years so that we might now look at them and learn something for this moment in time, so that we might live towards good works that bring glory to you in heaven. God, give us ears to hear, give us open hearts to understand, and then give us courage to act upon this teaching that you've brought before us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And God's people said? Amen. Okay. So, like I said, verse 9 is where we'll be spending most of our time. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Well, that seems nice. I'd like to be called a child of God. And, and why this stuck out to me this week and why I wanted to teach on this um, You may have heard about this election that we've had, and we need peacemakers now. We need peacemakers. Close to 70 plus million people will feel in this moment as though they've lost a contest. 70 plus million will feel as though they've won a contest. But to be honest, if we don't come together as the people of America, we won't get anything done. We won't build back that which has been lost. We will not recreate the unity that is the United States. We will not be able to trust in our fellow citizens. The camaraderie that is needed for our shared effort will be lacking. So who will be the peacemakers? Well, friends, I think God calls us if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, if you believe that he has died for you on the cross, if you believe that he has sent the Spirit of God to illuminate your heart and given you new life, resurrection life, because he also raised Jesus from the grave, then he is calling you to be a peacemaker, and that might be more important now than ever. We can do it. Why is that? Because I believe we, that is, those of us who have been reborn by the Spirit of God, understand peace as it truly is. And so we have a job to do. Now why do I say peace as it truly is? Uh, Because peace is not often what people think it is. Peace, at least in the biblical sense, is not primarily a feeling. It is not primarily a psychological state. It is not primarily the idea of tranquility. Peace is also not these things. It is not not rocking the boat. That's not being a peacemaker. It's not not saying or or simply um, pretending as if the boat is not sinking. That's not what it means to be a peacemaker, to ignore the fact that the ship is sinking. It is also not throwing 
people off the boat who you think caused the boat to begin to rock or the boat to begin to sink. Simply shoving them overboard is not being a peacekeeper. It's also not fleeing on a life raft while everyone else drowns. These, none of these are being a peacemaker. So today I'd like to do three things. I'd like to try to describe to you what peace is as the Bible defines it. Then I'd like to tell you how we can experience peace. And then I'd like to tell you how we can pass peace along to others. How we can actually be the peacemakers. Does that sound like a good challenge? A good project? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So let's try to understand peace. What is peace? Well, as I said, it is not primarily emotional, mental tranquility. But peace is the relieving of a real hostility. So what does that mean? It means a lack of war. I don't know if you thought when I say the word peace, that's what you think about, but it is relieving the hostility of war. So we have to ask ourselves a question. From a biblical perspective, where does peace begin? Well, if you're a student of the Bible, what you understand or maybe you don't understand this, is that we are, by nature, enemies of God. We are at war with God. This is the way we are born into the world because of Adam and original sin. If you read the beginning of the Bible and the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, you see that God has created a good world, and then that world gets turned upside down because Adam and Eve become hostile to God, they decide to go it their own way, they decide to buck the system, and a war ensues. And if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not so sure about this, that I'm at war with God, or was ever at war with God, um, I'd, I'd like to just propose, I'd like you to step into this consideration with me that maybe you are, or maybe you were. And if you want to experience the peace that we're talking about, to become a peacemaker, you have to first, the first step is to acknowledge that you were in fact, or are in fact, actually at war with God. You are an enemy of God apart from the work of Christ. Because if you don't accept that, you will never come to the solution to that, which is full surrender to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was probably, many scholars believe, the first great intellectual in American history, he wrote an essay, this is back in the 1700s, wrote an essay entitled, Men Naturally, or Men Are by nature, God's enemies. And it's really a uh, diatribe on Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and verses 10. So I'm going to read those to you real quick. I think we'll have them on your screen. 
Let me read them to you, and you'll see how this connects here to the idea of being a peacemaker. The Apostle Paul penned the book of Romans, and he said this to the church, explaining how things are with God. He said this, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A great truth. But again, to understand what he means by peace here, we have to understand what we were before the peace. So jump over to verse 10. Paul writing says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Speaking of his resurrected life. So put these two ideas together. Paul is saying, listen, You were an enemy of God, whether you acknowledge it or not, and by the death of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Son, you were made right or justified in a legal sense with God, meaning the sin that separated you from God, that made you hostile to God, is now removed by the death of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have new life as well, and now you live the rest of your life unto God in this resurrection power, the power that can make you a peacemaker. Okay, so in this essay, Jonathan Edwards, basically, um, he understands that when the title of his essay is going to stir some people up, that by nature you are an enemy of God. You say, I don't know about that. I have uh, pretty nice thoughts about God. You know, I go to church or... I you know, generally don't speak or use his name in vain. I generally do the right things. And Jonathan Edwards says, listen, it's not unusual, in fact, it's common for people to not be aware of their own hostility to their greatest enemies. In fact, psychologists have written about this as well, that, that often your true hostility lives subconsciously underneath your own awareness. We even hide our hostility from ourselves because to live with your hostility in the forefront is not very tenable. In fact, it's not very pleasant at all. And so Jonathan Edwards then works out how how this hiding from yourself that you're an enemy of God works. He says, here's three, three ways you might be able to start to identify that in fact you are an enemy of God. The first thing he says is intellectually. He says, you can say or think, I'm not an enemy of God, I've got nothing against God, but you keep yourself intellectually from thinking about God as he's revealed himself in this book. And so many people have this experience where as they begin to read more and more of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and they get to see God for who he actually is, they experience this great revulsion to this God. And what it reveals is perhaps they don't have enmity or hostility against the God that they've created in their own mind, but when they actually allow their minds to see the God, God as he actually has revealed himself, they begin to have an intellectual aversion. How could I worship a God like that? And so their minds reveal their hostility when confronted by the truth of who God reveals himself to be. The second way that we see ourselves um, 
revolting against God, rebelling against God, is volitionally, which is to say through acts of our will. And the easiest way to see this in your own life would be to say, um, think about all the promises that you've made to God over your life. God, I'll never do this. God, if you help me through this, I, I promise to do this. God, we make promises to God all the time. Now think about how many of those promises you've chosen to break. Broken promises to God in a way that you would never do to other people that you loved. Think about your friends, your family, your spouse. If you broke as many promises to them as you've broken to God, you would not call yourself a friend of God or a friend of those people. And so by acts of our will, we, we reveal, if we're honest about them, that we do not see God as a friend, but someone that we're very willing to go back against our promises in relationship with. Now, finally, third, Jonathan Edwards talks about how our emotions reveal that we are at enmity with God. Um, he says this, he says, imagine, I'm not sure if he says this, but I'm, I'm saying this, imagine um, if somebody that was a friend or loved one gave you a great gift, um, a gift that clearly was a blessing, and rather than treat them with warmness and thankfulness and gratitude, in fact, what you treated them with was coldness. Would you call that person a friend, or would you call that person an enemy? This is exactly what we do with God. He gives us great gifts time and time and time again, but the only thing we seem to respond to is the things that he doesn't give to us. All the good gifts, we treat him often with coldness. We don't acknowledge that he has given us these things. We keep him at arm's length. So emotionally, our emotional response to God and his goodness reveals to us that we have enmity with God. So this enmity, you know, as I've said, it sleeps deep down in you. Typically, until something in your life does not go the way that you want it to go. Then something happens. Your heart comes to life, doesn't it? And you begin to show your true colors to who God is. He is your enemy. And when you don't get that thing that you thought God would give to you, your heart becomes like a bucket of vipers hissing and attacking God. It's in those moments that the true heart of many, many people is revealed to their maker. So why do I go through all this? Before any of us, and, and probably many of us watching even now, before we truly come to Christ and accept what he's done for us, we do not have peace with God. There is not what I call vertical peace. 
we might sort of acknowledge him, put up with him, allow him in our life, but for many of us, we do not have peace with God. And if we do not have peace with God, how can we then be peacemakers? If there is a God and he is the source of life and goodness and flourishing, and yet we have a broken, rebellious relationship with him, how can we tap into that source to be a source of peace for others? I don't think that we can. And so step one is we must accept and acknowledge that we either were or currently are at war with God. And we need to find out how to relieve that hostility. And friends, there's only one way to relieve the hostility between us and God. And that's not by our own good works, but it's by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We must look to the cross of Christ and see what God had done for us. As, as Paul says here, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Christ put to death our sin and all rebellion through his blood. And then God the Father brought the Son back to life to show that there's life after hostility. And that's the life of peace. So therefore, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 1, since you have been justified by faith, that's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we, you, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing promise, especially when we understand that we were enemies of God, that we had true enmity for him, true hostility, but he invites us back into relationship while we were still sinners. It's an unbelievable promise. And it's only when we accept the finished work of Christ that we might then, with this vertical peace, bring about horizontal peace to those around us. So let me explain this. Why is this the only way to bring true peace? What happened on the cross was what we call the atonement, meaning Because of our sin and our rebellion and our hostility towards a holy and perfect God, because we went our own way, did things uh, on our own, God says, um, you've stored up for yourself wrath because God is a God of justice. He must balance the scales. Anything done wrong against his holiness must be accounted for. And and the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that 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 accounting happened for all those who turned to Jesus on the cross, that that uh, that wrath was absorbed by Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm. Uh, This is what theologians call the atonement. And um, when we experience the atonement for ourselves, when we accept it for ourselves, a reconciliation happens with, uh, with us and God, but also with us and neighbor. Actually, reconciliation with neighbor is a fruit of the atonement. So I need to explain this to you. Why is the, reconcili- or why is the atonement a fruit? Oh, sorry. Why is the fruit of the atonement a, re- a reconciliation with neighbor? So hang with me. Only when we see the atonement as the full finished work of God on our behalf... Will we be able to act as we should 
to create peace. This is rather complex. So I need to describe to you the difference between self-atonement and Christ-atonement. Uh, because everybody feels, right? We feel even now in our uh, current situation, our current national, international situation, uh, we feel as though uh, atonement needs to happen. Amends need to be made. And is there a difference between self-atonement and Christ-atonement? Well, I think there is. When you try to make amends by yourself um, for the shame or the guilt or the confusion that you experience, um, you have to do something, right? You have to live in another way. Uh, you have to make sure people see that you live in another way to make amends for your imperfection. Um, do you know what I'm saying? Do you feel that pressure? I feel real guilt, real shame. And how do I make things right? It's typically by doing the right things, saying the right things, making sure people see you do the right things and say the right things so that you might atone for yourself. Here's the problem with that. You never quite catch up. You never get to the place where you, you feel a true removal of the guilt or the shame. The confusion never quite goes away. You feel like you always must do more. You always must keep chasing your tail. And, and so you try to do it. You try to self-atone. But what you realize through self-atonement is it's not efficacious, meaning it doesn't actually lead to this complete sense of removal of guilt, of shame, or of the confusion that your imperfection creates. And so the cycle is never-ending. You must prove again and again that you aren't what you were or that your good outweighs your bad. And, and, and it is sort of a helpless feeling. Now, if you've experienced the atonement of Christ, you realize that there's something quite different. And, and I'd say this, if you've, if you've never felt removal of guilt and shame, then perhaps you aren't understanding the atonement of Christ or you haven't fully accepted it for yourself. Because when you understand what Jesus has done for you, you realize that truly your sin is taken away. As far as the east is from the west, your sin is removed. And this creates in you a kind of freedom to live and act as you should. Not that you will perfectly, you will constantly fall short, but when it comes to peacemaking, you will actually be able to say what needs to be said, rather than say what you think will atone for what you said before. Do you see what I'm saying? You are not doing this uh, difficult mathematical equation throughout your whole life because you know Christ has died for your sin, past, present, and future, and so you can live now in the present as you should, meaning do what you think is best. Say what you think is best and right here in this moment. And only people who have accepted the full and complete atonement of Christ can do that because they are not trying to atone for themselves. I hope this is making sense. This is quite complex. Let me give you an illustration that, I, that came to me this week. I thought it may or may not be helpful, so stick with me. Think, uh, think about the person you know who has the, uh, is the loudest sneezer. Do you have somebody that pumps to mind? Somebody who just sneezes at full volume and full strength at all times. 
There's no holding it back. They do, they just let it go. Do you have somebody like that in your life? My wife, Allie's probably laughing right now because I think I am a full sneezer. And I always say to her, because she always tries to hold it in, you know, you know, and I'm like, Allie, you gotta let it go. Why? Because your body is telling you when, when it gives you that sneeze reflex that there's something it's trying to get rid of, that it's actually best for your body to sneeze. Now think about this. Why do people hold it in? Like, why do they ever hold in a sneeze? Because of the shame and guilt that they'll feel around them. So, like, when you have a two-year-old, my son Owen just turned two yesterday, um, when he's sleeping... I actually do. That's the only time in my life I hold in my sneeze is when Owen's sleeping because I don't want to be responsible for waking him up. You see the, the pressure, the social pressure. We feel it now more than ever, right? Now to sneeze is the greatest of sins. <laughs> to sneeze in a, in a global pandemic is, is literally the greatest of sins. And so you feel the pressure to what? Justify yourself, uh, to escape from shame or guilt, and so you don't do what your biology is telling you needs to happen for you to move forward and grow and get better. You hold it in because you know it's not best for you. You don't feel great after you hold in a sneeze. You feel terrible. And you just keep holding the sneezes in over and over and over again. And it creates a kind of superficial peace in the room that you're in. But you're absorbing it all in yourself. You're absorbing the shame, the guilt. It's all on you. You have to control the whole thing. And your body has this type of enmity that grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And maybe you stuff it subconsciously. And for the whole day, you've got this sneeze that you know needs to get out. That's what it's like to try to atone for your own sin. And you might create the illusion of peace with those around you. But deep down, it's like this moral vortex that just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper, and there's no bottom to it. And it usually comes out in one of two ways. When the world or you as an individual continue to try to self-atone for your sin, it will lead you to one of two ends. Because that feeling becomes so immense, you will either wallow in the sin, both personal sin and societal sin, you'll begin to wallow and it will overwhelm you and you won't be able to move forward, or you will trivialize it and you'll say, nah, it's not that big of a deal, it's, it's, it's not really a sin, or our society's sin is not really a sin. That's the only way because the pressure becomes so deep and so you can't actually act in accordance with reality. But who can? Those of us who accept the completed work of Christ Jesus on the cross and we accept the freedom that comes knowing that we can never atone for ourselves, we can never make amends for our sin, but Christ made those amends. It's not a license to then live however we want. It's freedom to now live as we should because we're not, no longer locked up in this unrepented sneeze. When we do that, when we accept the finished work of Jesus, 
when we feel the relief of knowing that we can't save ourselves, that our good works don't save us, that we can't earn salvation, that we can't earn uh, the release of shame from our friends or family, when we give that all to Christ Jesus, when we point to the cross, we say, not I, but he is the maker of peace, then we can become peacemakers. So go back to Matthew chapter 5 with me, and let me just show you here. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. If you accept the finished work of Christ, and you experience, okay, you acknowledge you are at war with him, you see that while you are at war with him, he sent his son to die for you, you accept that Jesus died for you and that God rose him back to new life, and you have real peace with God, now you are. Matthew says, peacemakers, because you shall be called a child of God. And what is a child of God? One who is like God, his offspring. And the original peacemaker, God himself, his DNA, his teaching flows through you now into the world as his child, as his representative, as an extension of of his name to all creation. You see how that works? And you will be called blessed. And you will experience a joy and a richness. I'm saying it's easy. Peace is not about things being easy. It's about war being ended, hostility being ended. It was not easy for Christ to go to the cross. Of course not. And it will not be easy to create peace but you will get to be like God. And what a blessed reality that is, that joy, that satisfaction of knowing that you're participating in the things of your Father. So how do you know? What are the signs in your life that you are being a child of God, that you're being like Dad, that you're doing what Dad does, which is to make peace with his enemies? Well, the first thing I think you realize when you look at the life of Jesus in particular is that There is a humility in victory. There's a humility in victory. Jesus had all the power, and yet he humbled himself to give his life for his enemies. Even after his resurrection and the victory is clearly won, you see Christ's humility. In fact, that's one of the Beatitudes to be humble, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So humility in victory is a huge key to being a peacemaker. Like I said, there, there's an election. I, you know, who knows? I think it's over, but you know, let's say when it's over, there will be winners and there will be losers. As Christians, if the candidates that you voted for won their elections, have great humility Do not use this as a chance to rub it in with your friends and family at the Thanksgiving dinner. Don't do it. Be a peacemaker as Christ is a peacemaker. Be like your father. Now, for those who lose or whose candidates did not win their elections, do not seek revenge. That is not what it means to be a child of God. Someone has to break the cycle. 
Christians, we, with our good works, can bring glory to our Father by not acting as we did as natural men, but as supernaturally regenerate children of God. We cannot gloat in victory or seek revenge in defeat. Jesus said what? Love your enemies. You want to be like your Father? Love your enemies. If the only people you can love are people that you agree with, then you probably have not experienced the peace of God, and you definitely cannot therefore be peacemakers. Now, what I'm not saying, one of the signs is not that you never make any waves, but one of the signs is that you don't make waves all the time. You see, Jesus made waves, he ruffled feathers, but not all the time. Pure persecution will be a part of being a peacemaker. Jesus says that in, in, at the end of the chapter. That, um, he says, listen, people will come after you because they came after Jesus for trying to be a peacemaker. Because Jesus made waves. But listen, Jesus wasn't persecuted all the time. And so one of the things you want to look at in your own life is, um, are you either being persecuted sometimes or are you being persecuted all the time? Or are you being persecuted never? And, and, and if you're actually doing the things of God, what you should realize as you take an account of your life is that if you're never being persecuted at all for your act of being a peacemaker, then you're probably actually just being a coward. Because there are things that you will stand up for as a Christian that will ruffle some feathers, and you will experience persecution, Jesus says. But if you're being persecuted all the time, nonstop, that probably just means you're obnoxious. So stop being obnoxious. Jesus was not persecuted all the time, but he's definitely persecuted. So somewhere in between coward and obnoxious is the way of the peacemaker. Again, it doesn't mean that you just don't rock the boat. It means that you say what needs to be said because you're free from believing that your actions are what justify you, that your words are what justify you because you turn to the cross and you say, that is what justifies me with God and you can step into your role as a peacemaker. So you see what I'm saying here? Peace with God, what is it? It's the removal of hostility. It's the removal of war. It's not a feeling. How do you experience this removal of hostility? You begin by accepting the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Then, because you are free from your sin, it no longer defines you, it no longer holds you under its weight, you can now move and act as God acts in the world, and you can pass along that peace to others. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe, maybe somebody needs to be a peacemaker right now. Say the thing that needs to be said. Maybe it's between your housemates, your friend groups. Maybe it's at work. How can we represent the love and peace of God to our world, our city, and our nation in times like these? Listen, friends, we have a choice to make, especially on the tail end of this year, in this election cycle, we get to ask, are we going to be a part of the problem or are we going to be a part of the solution? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Will you be called children of God because you make peace 
true peace, removal of hostility in our world so that we might thrive and grow for the good of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we can have, true peace, true peace with you because of Jesus' work and his work alone. God, we pray, I pray for my friends who who, who may have thought they had peace with God, but as they begin to look about the way they respond to God intellectually, as they, they read more about him, or how they respond volitionally, as they actually are called to do hard things for God and to give up other things, or as they look emotionally when God does not give them um, what they think that they deserve, that, that they see, oh my goodness, I'm still at enmity with God. If there's anybody that's listening now, God, may they turn to you and see your son Jesus hanging upon a cross and see what you did for them while they were still enemies and bend their knee and accept true forgiveness, full forgiveness, complete atonement, your wrath absorbed by Jesus on their behalf. May they accept that now for the first time in their life and may they weep thinking about what you've done for them. May that be the victory that they truly celebrate day in and day out, God, and may it give them a freedom to now move and act in the world according to what you've called them to be, peacemakers, because they no longer have to play the game and atone for themselves by themselves. We pray now, Jesus, that you would make us friends and not enemies, that we might have peace with you and that we might go into the world and be your peacemakers. Today, this week, this month, this next year, and for the rest of our life, so that you might receive glory when they see our light, who sources your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.